Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It's hard for me to pinpoint where and when my eating disorder began. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. He just couldn't sense that I was hopeless. You get to that point where you just you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast brought to you by Lockaway Self Storage and Podspot. I began rereading my diaries and actually it enabled me to grieve for the little girl that got horribly lost and I just wanted to take her hand and help her get get out of that terribly dark forest that she was lost in for so many years. You're enough, you're more than enough, and you will always be enough. My eating disorder started at seven. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge, and your daughter's not there. There is hope at endad.org.au. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I have the amazing Emma Louise and she's going to share with us a little bit about her journey with ARFID. For those of you who don't know, that's Avoidant Restrictant Food Intake Disorder and Anorexia. Thank you so much for joining me, Emma. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I'd like you to begin with you giving our listeners an insight into your journey, um, a little bit of an overview so people have got an idea of, of what you battled. Yeah, so I've always had a negative association with food from as pretty much from the day I was born. I refused to feed um, and was tube fed for a little bit there. Um, as I got older, I was quite sick a lot with recurrent tonsillitis, chest infections and asthma and my mum was always like an anxious person um, and whenever I would get sick she would panic and like any mother would when their child is sick um, and I feel a little that that anxiety kind of transferred into me um, around when I would get sick and um, so when I would get sick it was a scary experience because I thought it was such a bad thing and my mum would get angry and um, not that she didn't care for me or anything. She still cared for me the best that she could. Um, and I think just that fear, it has always played out in my life and I've always had a massive fear of getting sick and I know nobody enjoys getting sick, but when you have like, a massive fear that just becomes overwhelming at that time. It makes life very hard. And having had tonsillitis all the time as a child, I developed a fear of choking because I always had trouble with swallowing certain things and this developed into textural aversions with certain foods. And as I got older, um, I was always very picky with food and I think that's a normal developmental stage for most children and it becomes more severe in children or it doesn't just have to be children adolescents and adults can also develop after at any stage in life but 
it is a common thing that can develop when you're younger um, and it needs to be something that is closely monitored with children that are picky eaters um, because a lot of children will grow out of that stage whereas some children will go on to have like chronic issues with uh, with food that impacts their health and their growth um, and then I feel like the textural issues and me being no I wouldn't yes fussy but um very averse to certain foods and textures my whole life because of that fear of what if this makes me sick what if I can't swallow it what if I choke um that also developed into what's called a metaphobia and for those that don't know what that is it's a severe fear of vomiting um so that causes a lot of angst in me, especially around going out for food and socialising, more so around foods that you would think that have a higher contamination risk than those that have a lower risk. Um, So that also affects me quite significantly um, but has got better over the years. And then in my late teens, I developed anorexia and I kind of feel like the AFID side of things was kind of just a trigger mm. and um, a lot of people that have AFID don't have another eating disorder that's associated with body image and body image dissatisfaction it's solely just around the fear of certain foods and textures um, but for me it went further into anorexia um, and that has been a complicated journey with having both um, and trying to dealing with trying to deal with both and recover with both at hand because one might be going okay but then the other's not going so okay and then it kind of plays into one another and causes a vicious cycle of further restriction and it can be quite overwhelming <laughs> when trying to navigate that. And do you find that it is a bit like that, that when one won't be going so well, um, you know, another one will be sort of, you know, okay and one, you know, and then when the other one's okay, the other one will flare up. Does it sort of work like that or is sometimes they're both in full force at the same time? Sometimes they can both be in full force at the same time. Um, Other times one is usually the anorexia is a lot louder than the ARFID side of things that just plays out in different areas of life with food and as much as it plays into being restrictive and avoiding certain foods it is also restrictive in life because food is such a social thing you restrict yourself from socializing and you avoid that in fear of not having something on the menu that's safe for you in terms of like textural and all those kind of like fears that feed, like that make you feel safe and at ease with it, being able to eat that around certain people or just in general being able to eat certain things. Yeah, it definitely plays out not just with food but in other areas of life as well. And with your emetophobia, you said that you've actually got to a space now it's a little bit better how do you deal with that? How how do you work through that and get to a better space with it? A lot of graded exposure in my job has helped. 
um, in my line of work, I kind of can't avoid that. What do you do? I'm a registered nurse. Okay. Um, and that was something in high school that I told my guidance counsellor that I wanted to become a nurse and she told me that I would never become a nurse because of my severe anxiety and fear around becoming sick. Um, and I'm seven years in now and I'm loving every minute of it. Congratulations. That's so fantastic. Thank you. And so basically exposure was one of the key things in helping you to... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel that I deal with it better at work than I do at home um, or if it's with somebody that is closely associated to me. I feel like sometimes I get a lot more anxious if it is in my home or somebody that I've been with for a period of time, whereas at work you can just leave it at the door. Yes. Um, and, yeah, I feel like I just deal with it a lot better <laughs> at work. For those listeners out there who haven't experienced eating disorders firsthand, can you give them an idea of what it's like to battle both ARFID and anorexia, how it felt for you? Um, so my thoughts are constantly bombarded with, on the ARFID side of things, it's a constant um, voice in my head that's like, don't eat that, that's going to make you sick. And we're not, like I was not at home in my safe space. Um, that would create a lot of it, a lot of anxiety, and sometimes the anxiety would make me feel sick, and then it feeds into that vicious cycle of am I just feeling sick because I'm anxious, or am I actually sick? And that would just exacerbate things and the anxiety around that. So you've constantly got the thoughts of this may not be safe to eat, um, don't eat that, or if I'm eating something that I struggle with texturally, it's just the constant thoughts of like, please try and not make a fool of yourself and gag in front of whoever I'm with because you can't deal with the texture. When you say and you can't deal with the texture, what do you mean by that? It's like, I don't know how to explain it in great detail, but it's like this connection in my brain that kind of closes off my throat, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Or... I will start getting these thoughts that, oh, you're really full, don't swallow that, don't eat that, otherwise we'll be sick. And you know how that's going to play out. That's not going to end well. So there's constant thoughts and it's kind of like I feel it a little bit physically in those moments with not being able to swallow certain things or being able to deal with certain soft textures is the main texture I really struggle with. So vegetables is one thing that I've always struggled with the texture of. And when you've got anorexia and the voices of that being so like weight and health food focused at times, I was getting like, I get a lot of thoughts that, oh, well, you don't have anorexia because you eat X, Y, Z because that's your safe food, but nobody with anorexia eats those foods. (laughs) So I would get both sides playing with each other in that way and so the guilt that plays out with the anorexia side of things really impacts the way that I eat certain things I guess yeah it's so complex isn't it very (laughs) sometimes it's like I remember my head just felt like it was going to explode because it was just so full of all these competing thoughts 
and yeah. it was like there wasn't even any more room for them to battle it out up there. Yeah, that's how it feels. Have there been moments where you've felt hopeless? Oh, many a time. I'm in no way recovered from either. Very, like, far from where I used to be. In terms of the acid side of things, it's a slow process, like a very slow process. I can be okay with eating something for an amount of time and then all of a sudden one day I'll have this thought that, oh, this texture doesn't feel good or this might make you sick and then, bam, I can't eat that for a period of time or ever again and I have to pick my battles on certain days where with those foods that I may have eaten before especially with vegetables. It's something that I'm working really hard on in eating at the moment. And as much as I know that I need to incorporate those, not every day, but occasionally to challenge that, if there's one day that I'm like, oh, a bit hesitant, there's, I just have to put that aside. And it's not in a way that I'm avoiding it, but I know that if I force myself to eat that the day that I'm kind of just not feeling it, that I may create an aversion make it worse right and when you've had those moments where you've felt like really really hopeless what has helped you to keep that hope alive I have a great team around me that has helped me immensely and I wouldn't be where I am today without them and I'm very thankful for them and everything they do with me and the way we go about my journey and yeah. <laughs> it can be so important to have that, especially when you do have those moments where you're feeling like there isn't any hope because often it is. I know for me it was about having other people hold that hope for me and then yeah. you sort of cling on to their hope <laughs> that they've got in you until you can find that hope yourself. Yeah, and that's definitely how I've, I've been in moments where I just didn't want to be here anymore because I just – was in such a dark place that I felt like I wasn't going to be able to get myself out of. But I think even though I felt hopeless, that, yeah, holding on to the hope that somebody else has in me has definitely helped. Arthur, you know, is an eating disorder that isn't often discussed or, or understood properly. Did that make your diagnosis or seeking help difficult? Well, for me, I actually, it wasn't until I relapsed a couple of years ago that my psychiatrist was like, oh, you know, your picture looks more of an acid, like aside from the anorexia side of things, everything that I struggle with in terms of texture and stuff, I just had a recent hospital admission and that also complicates things because I feel like a lot of healthcare professionals in those settings don't quite understand that you're battling something that should come easy in a way. Um, not, I wouldn't say easy, but in a way for somebody that doesn't have ARFID, I guess, that they don't have those other intrusive thoughts. It made it really hard to speak up and I felt like I just had to get on with it. I just had to deal with it even though I was internally struggling inside to just be able to eat these certain foods that I otherwise struggled with and to avoid having to have supplement drinks. So it has made things... I guess helpful in a way too because I feel like it's only been something that's been more recognised in the last maybe six or seven years, the ARFID type thing and diagnosis, I should say. 
and it wasn't until my psychiatrist said, look, these signs and aversions more point to an Arfid type picture and I went away and was reading about it and I'm like just ticking all the boxes and I'm like, I've had this my whole life and it's never been picked up until now. And I'd had my anorexia diagnosis long before the ARFID diagnosis, but it definitely been like the ARFID has been there since I was little and it's not something that has been picked up until a couple of years ago. Yeah. What do you feel are the biggest misconceptions about ARFID? That you're just fussy and that you just don't want to eat because you don't like certain foods. But it goes so far beyond just being fussy. I don't think people quite understand the internal dialogue and torture around having to eat certain things because you have that fear of it might make you sick. And for some people, they don't just have the fear that it might make them sick. They may have other traumatic experiences that have played out in their life that have um, eventuated into an ARFID diagnosis. Um, It's not always a fear of getting sick. Other people, yeah have different experiences like with anything yeah what would you like people to know you know about ARFID that it goes so far beyond just being fussy and being picky with food the anxiety associated to it is like asking somebody to drink poison if that makes it any easier for somebody to understand if you're being asked to drink poison or eat something that was poisonous um is probably the best way to explain it. And so really that fear is that intense for you? Yeah, it does become that intense with certain things. Not so much these days because I'm learning to recognise those thoughts and remind myself that I'm safe. And Get ready for Foxtel's epic lineup of sport and entertainment the whole family can enjoy all in one place. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together. Get the world's best drama. Blockbuster movies, AFL, NRL and F1 live in 4K Ultra HD, plus Netflix. Looks like paradise, eh? Discover a winning deal with Foxtel on sale now. Search Foxtel or call 131787. New customers only. Offerings April 20. This isn't going to hurt me. This is going to benefit me. Um, But certainly back when those thoughts were quite intrusive. Um, It was quite intense. Did you suffer from any judgment and and stigma? As a child, my mum would always keep me home from sleepovers. She wouldn't let me socialise because she was worried that I wouldn't eat. Or if I was to go to a sleepover, she would take me later at night when dinner was over. Other than that, like I said, people just as fussy eating and I think that's the biggest misconception um, when you're dealing with this sort of disorder. And it's so much more than that. I mean, it's like when you gave the analogy of the poison, I I remember the analogy um, that I often talk about when, you know, you're talking about anorexia and the fact that it's like asking an arachnophobic to eat spiders because, you know, yeah. <laughs> you've got them crawling all inside of you and you just want to rip off your skin. And I think analogies can be so helpful in getting people to understand the intensity of the fear that goes with having to do, you know, things that are so normal and natural for other people. Yeah, oh, I find analogies being the best thing to 
somebody who doesn't understand to understand being the best way. <laughs> what do you think needs to change so that ARFID is more widely recognised and understood? I think with children that are fussy, I think a close eye needs to be kept on um, their progression and um, throughout their developmental stage. Um, with, Like I said, it's a normal developmental stage for a child to go through a fussy stage, but I think a close eye need, definitely needs to be kept on those children to pick up any warning signs that something's not right and this is impacting their health is probably one thing. But I think because it's something that is related to like childhood more so than it being an adolescent or being an adult with it, that's more recognised, I think, in younger children. Yeah, I think it would be great to have some more lived experience voices in the space as well um, of people struggling with ARFID and speaking out about how, just like you are today, about how it feels um, and how it might interplay with other uh, comorbidities that a person is experiencing um, because they feel that that will then enable people to have a real, um, I guess, first-hand look into what it's like to, to battle it. Oh, definitely. Have you come to a place of acceptance now with your body? Not yet, no. <laughs> I'm still working on that. What sort of yeah. things are you doing at the moment to help you to get to that place? Just focusing on self-care and not burning myself out because I know that's when things become quite detrimental um, and head down a spiral. So, yeah, self-care is something that I struggle with but getting better with. Um, so I've started going for acupuncture and massage and that's a big thing for me, um, just having that mind-body connection, which I find really helpful to just calm my nervous system and just be in touch with my body, I guess. But it's definitely a long journey and a very difficult one. Yes, it's absolutely it's an important part of the puzzle, but it's a, it's a tricky one to, to get fit, fitted in there. I yeah. think that it's self-care is just is so, so essential and so important in cultivating uh, a sense of gratitude and unconditional love for these beautiful, beautiful uh, earth suits, as Carolyn Costin calls them, um, within which we get to experience this amazing world around us. Yeah. You, know, you say that self-care, you find it difficult. Why is that? I feel like I've always struggled with feeling worthy of self-care and giving myself attention. It's something that has played out in my life since I was little. Um, I had an experience when I was about eight or nine years old. I was at a friend's place and her mother made a comment that just stuck with me um, my whole life. And it, along with other things in my life, this has been a pretty significant comment that stayed with me and I felt ashamed to be in the world. I felt ashamed to be my parents' daughter. I didn't feel worthy that this mother made a comment and I believed it and and still struggling to work around that comment today. Yeah, I think it just has always come down to self-worth and feeling undeserving of being in the world. It's so important that people realise the power of their words. Yeah. And you have to be so, so, so careful in what you say because it just like 
your experience, one comment can cause uh, years of of destruction and, and emotional turmoil. And I'm so sorry that that happened to you and please know that you are absolutely worthy and you know that's that's unconditional we're all born with with our worth and that doesn't change no matter what anyone says what anyone does um, what we look like uh, what we do for work um, anything like that that doesn't change our infinite worth that we're born with has social media had an impact on your journey at all? I'm going to think it hasn't. I feel like I was so young when everything kind of developed. Like even if I think back with my anorexia, it, social media wasn't really around then. So I wouldn't say that it has, but in the last 12 months since COVID and people doing home workouts and focusing so much on like focusing on their diet and exercise during lockdown and I feel seeing that has impacted me in a, in a way because I used to struggle with exercise addiction and sometimes it just I look at that and I'm like oh people have so much motivation to just get up and do these exercises when I feel so lazy <laughs> and I'm not exercising because I'm trying to like steer away from getting caught in that cycle of obsessively exercising. Um, so I guess in some way it has impacted me in the last 12 months more so. But before then, um, I wouldn't say so. You're definitely not alone in that. I think COVID and what we've seen online, as you say, with home workouts and the intense focus on that uh, and the talk about bodies and weight gain during uh um, lockdown and all of that it's been uh, a pressure cooker of a situation where people who you know have um, vulnerabilities around this have been thrown into this fire so to speak and um, scrambling to to find solid ground with it and I think it's something that we need to talk about because it's you don't have to be doing all these home workouts it's yeah. not um, it doesn't somehow make you better than another person and I think it's so essential that as you say you know you had an exercise addiction just as I did and you to, you know that you can't go down that track and yeah. um it is it's so important to protect yourself from all of that and if that means that you have to have breaks from social media so that you're not constantly bombarded um with that content then that's what what you have to do oh definitely and unfollowing anybody that you don't find helpful exactly exactly there's definitely people i've had to unfollow just for a certain amount of time sometimes just because their content is triggering or that it's going through a stage that yeah is triggering and i've refollowed them later on down the track or i've just completely left it because yes. they don't serve me and my journey Exactly. And I think that's a great, great phrase to use where this is concerned. They don't serve me in my journey. 
Yeah. Um, because we, Lord knows in our brains we're in the middle of eating disorder recovery. There is enough clutter. There's enough noise. <laughs> there are enough voices and, and ideas and opinions battling themselves out. We don't need to then throw a whole lot of other um, random <laughs> random voices and accounts from, from the wild uh, west of the internet into there as well. Yeah, definitely. What has been the most valuable thing that your eating disorder journey has taught you? I always felt shame that I went through it until my last or in the last couple of years will be my most recent relapse. Um, I think I'm very grateful for having gone through that, even though it was one of the lowest times of my entire life and it's been the hardest thing to come back from. I've found myself a lot more. I am more in tune with myself. I know what serves me and what isn't serving me. I'm able, I'm learning to set boundaries, which is something that I always struggled with being a chronic people pleaser. Me too, um, honey, me too. And yeah, and I'm, I'm excited to see where the rest of my journey takes me because of how far I've come in the last couple of years and just the work that's gone into getting me here and yeah, just finding myself is the biggest thing. It's such a beautiful thing, isn't it? When you really, yeah. Um, for me, I, I talk about it as I came home to myself. Yeah, um, yeah. It was this journey of of becoming softer um, and and coming home to myself. And it is yeah. just the most wonderful feeling. And I'm excited to see where uh, the next part of your journey takes you to. And mm. I think it's incredible all the hard work that you've put into getting to where you are today. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Another thing that really helped me in this time is connecting with my spirituality. I feel like that is definitely the one thing that really saved me in being able to apply deeper meaning to things. And I know that that's not for everyone, but everybody finds their own little niche that gets them through. Um, But spirituality has definitely played a massive part in my journey and getting me to where I am today. That's so fantastic that you discovered that. As you say, you know, it's not for everyone, but if it works for you, then that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah definitely. In your opinion, what are the best ways that people can support someone who is going through ARFID? Just to understand that their head's probably screaming at them in that moment of having to eat a certain food um, or just allowing them to order their safe food if you go out or having their safe foods at your home if they're coming over for dinner or something. Um, just checking in with them, just maybe ask them what they might like for dinner um, that everybody can agree on. I think I find that planning for me has definitely been very helpful. Um, the anxiety of not knowing what somebody might be making for dinner or um, what if I don't like it definitely causes quite a stir. But I have learned now that pre-planning is definitely very helpful in um, calming the anxiety around what might be there. And I know that some might say that that like pre-planning is like a disordered thing in with anorexia, but you've got to make do with what you've got in that moment um, to try and make yourself not so anxious. Yes. Well, as you say, because as you said before, 
you know, before about well, then the anxiety feeds the nausea, which then <laughs> feeds yeah. the phobia, and so it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. Finally, what words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those who are still fighting their eating disorder every day? Um, just that their journey is valid and that their story is no less than anybody else. And that, like you always say, there is hope. Whether you feel it yourself, just let somebody else hold that hope for you if you can't find that in the moment. But know that there is light at the end of the tunnel is probably, yeah, <laughs> my yeah. words of wisdom. Thank you. There is light. There is so much light at the end of that tunnel. And I think sometimes that tunnel can feel really dark and really long um, and really claustrophobic, but we've got to keep reaching for that light and knowing that it's there. You know, you might feel like you're in a tunnel where there isn't any light at the end of it and am I ever going to get there and maybe this is a never-ending tunnel but just know that there is absolutely an end to that tunnel and there is light waiting for you. You've just got to keep fighting day in and day out for what you deserve, which is freedom and a life filled with light and love and feeling comfortable in your own skin. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. I so, so appreciate it. It's so wonderful to get an insight into one of the eating disorders that isn't talked about a lot. Um, And that was one of the purposes of this podcast was to, um, you know, really start getting rid of some of the myths and stigma around eating disorders, which one of the biggest ones is that often, um, you know, the only eating disorders that are spoken about, you know, most commonly are, you know, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder. Um, And so it's so wonderful that we can have conversations like this so that people understand that there are many other eating disorders out there, um, all of which are so torturous and we need to understand more about them and talk about them. Yeah, I'd love to see more awareness around our feds in the future. Because I don't think, yeah, it is something that is very well recognised. And like I said, I feel like it's only been more recognised in the last six or so years. Um, But if we could start shedding more light on that eating disorder, um, then that would be great. (laughs) Well, we're one step closer with this podcast episode. Thanks to you. (laughs) This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast. Brought to you by Lockaway Self Storage and Podspot. Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? Get ready for Foxtel's epic lineup of sport and entertainment the whole family can enjoy. The world's best drama and movies, AFL and NRL, live in 4K Ultra HD and Netflix. Discover a winning deal. Search Foxtel or call 131787. New customers only. Offerings April 20.